Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will begin an exposition of the book of Luke. We're going to do, in chapter 1, we're going to do some introductory matters first, and then we're going to look at the announcement to John the Baptist to Zacharias and to his wife Elizabeth about the birth of John the Baptist. First of all, some introductory material. The author of our book is Luke. His name is not in the book. However, we are very sure that he wrote the book. There are many proofs to show that he wrote the book. For example, the language and structure of Luke and Acts are the same. We know Acts was written by Luke. Well, how do we know that? Because the author of Acts was with Paul. We know that because of the we passages, and scholars can, by the process of elimination, determine that Luke is the only one, or Luke is the one most likely likely to be with Paul. That's the NIV Study Bible. Most likely, it's not certain, but Luke is the one. Both of the uh, both of the books of Luke and Acts are addressed to the same guy, Theophilus. Acts actually refers to Luke. Acts one one says this in the first book. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book, O Theophilus, that would be the book of Luke. And plus, there's the uniform testimony of all early Christian writings that that mention it. Luke is the Luke is the author of the book, so there's no question about that. Now, what are the personal characteristics of Luke? He was a Gentile. He was the only gospel writer that was a Gentile. How do we know that? Well, Lukas, the Greek, is a Greek name. The author of Luke writes with the Greek style. The vocabulary of the author of Luke shows he is highly educated. I guess you could be a highly educated Jew as well as a Gentile, but he's uh, he's a highly educated Greek. He uses Greek expressions rather than Hebrew. And also there's two scriptures that prove it too. Colossians 4:10 through 11, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says this, starting in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. So now Paul mentions three workers, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice. And then he says, these alone of the circumcision are my co-workers. In other words, the only Jewish workers I have are these three. He doesn't mention Luke. We drop down three verses to Colossians 4.14. Paul says this, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas greet you. That shows that Luke was with Paul. Luke was with Paul in verse 14, but in verses 10 through 11, Paul doesn't mention him as the Jewish, uh, as his one of his Jewish co-workers. So he's Gentile. Now, even though all the first Christians were Jewish, Luke, a Gentile, wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer, any of the other Jewish writers. Luke wrote more of it. Why? Because he wrote the book of Acts, and that was very long. He also wrote, of course, the Gospel of Luke. He was well-educated in Greek culture. As I mentioned, he was a physician, the dearly loved physician, as Paul says in his, in his closing to the book of Colossians. As a doctor, he was a man of science and research. Thus, he carefully has investigated Jesus' life Nobody knows where he's from. Some people suggest Syrian Antioch. Some people Philippi in Greece. What was the, who was the recipient of the gospel? It was written to Theophilus, who was probably a Roman official. And if not, he at least he probably had high position and wealth because of his title, Most Excellent Theophilus. He was possibly Luke's patron publisher. It was common to dedicate a writing to a publisher. But he was more than a publisher. The book was written for his instruction. Luke 1 verse 4 says this, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So it sounds like Theophilus might have been instructed in the faith, might have been a member of the, of the church. The book was written for Theophilus' instruction as well as for those among 
whom the book would be circulated, also for their instruction too. Now, Theophilus probably did, probably did not live in Palestine because Luke gives such detailed descriptions of the geography there, which makes it sound like he was intending to help people who didn't live in Palestine. So the book was probably, Theophilus was probably outside of Palestine. What was the purpose of the book of Luke? To strengthen the faith of believers, to defend the gospel from attacks by unbelievers, to displace disconnected and ill-founded reports about Jesus, to show the Gentile Christian that he had a place in the kingdom of God. What are the dates of the book? Some people speculate between 59 and 63. Some people say the 70s or 80s. I like what Bishop John Robertson, the former liberal who apparently got saved at the end of his life, and in any rate, he got definitely more conservative about dating the Gospels pushed him further and further back till he said all of them. Not only the Gospels, every book, I think, every book in the New Testament was written before AD 70. The place of writing, the NIV Study Bible says Luke probably wrote the book at Rome, most probably. Other people guess Achaia in Greece, Ephesus, western Turkey, Caesarea in Israel. We'll say it's Rome. The style of Luke's book, his Greek is outstanding. He has a rich and extensive vocabulary. His style sometimes approaches that of classical Greek, and his style and vocabulary varies with the setting. When Luke refers to Peter in a Jewish setting, he uses more Semitic language. When he describes Paul in a Hellenistic setting in the book of Acts, he uses more Greek language. The Gospel of Luke is the most comprehensive gospel. It, it takes us all the way from John the Baptist to the ascension of Christ. It's the most universal gospel. It emphasizes the place of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God, and that, that makes sense because Luke was a Gentile writer. It's the gospel which emphasizes preaching the gospel the most. The word gospel is mentioned 10 times in the gospel of Luke, plus 15 times more in, in the book of Acts. It's, this, it's the gospel which is most interested in women, the gospel which is most interested in women, children, and social outcasts. It's the gospel most concerned with the role of women in the kingdom. It stresses the family circle. The settings in the book of Luke were often descriptions of the home. It's the gospel which emphasizes prayer the most. Seven times Luke refers to Jesus praying. It's the gospel which emphasizes most the Holy Spirit and joy. It has lots of historical detail. It shows great concern for sinners. It uses the phrase Son of Man repeatedly, that messianic title that Jesus, Jesus used of himself. It has a great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And it has more emphasis than the other Gospels on Jesus' closing ministry in Judea and Perea at the end of his life, end of his ministry. What are some of the sources that Luke used? Well, he personally investigated his sources. He had testimony from eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In verse 2 in chapter 1, he says this, Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Of course, he had oral accounts of the apostles he could have interviewed. He used some of the same material, and he included some of the same material, and he included some material which was the same as the other Gospels and some that was different than the other Gospels. All right, with that behind us, let's start with Luke's dedication to, of the Gospel to Theophilus in verses 1 through 4. This is the King James. I apologize for that. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth and order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, 
to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Notice that Luke says he had perfect, a complete understanding of everything from the very first about the good news of Jesus. So I have written unto you, most excellent Theophilus, that thou, in verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So you see, Luke is very confident as a historian. He says, I have a complete understanding, and he says the things are certain. He says that you, Theophilus, might know the certainty of the things that I have, that you have previously been instructed in. Now, he in verse 1, it says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth a declaration of the gospel things, well, that means that other histories of Jesus' life were written before Luke. Matthew and Mark were probably two of them. Again, I don't want to get into the dating of the gospels, but those two were probably before Luke, and there were also other non-inspired gospels written, most probably. Now, who were the eyewitnesses? He mentions eyewitnesses even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Luke probably interviewed the apostles, the original 11 apostles, not Judas, of course. Probably interviewed the Virgin Mary. The Christian religion is based upon fact. It is not faith based upon feelings. It's faith based upon fact, not faith based upon feelings. Now, this title, Most Excellent Theophilus, probably means, as I mentioned earlier, that Theophilus is a Roman official. It could very well be that Luke, as well as the book of Acts, was Paul's defense in Rome, because Acts leaves off with Paul about to stand trial in Rome. And so Luke could have very well sat down in Rome and wrote the book of Luke and Acts to defend Paul with and say, look here, what he, Paul is doing is perfectly legitimate. He's not crazy. He's not a revolutionary. He's not trying to destroy the Jews. The, the introduction that we just looked at is written in elegant classical style because of Theophilus' station. He's a big shot, so Luke wrote it very nice, nicely. But the remainder of the book is written in down-to-earth common people style, interestingly enough. All right, so now let's go to the birth of John the Baptist being foretold. This is in verses 5 through 25. Starting in verse 5, going through verse 7. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. In the days of King Herod, that's Herod the Great who was an extraordinarily evil man who murdered his wife and his sons. I've just read a biography just recently of Herod the Great. It's, you can read him in Josephus, too. You can read all about him in Josephus. Fascinating guy. Everybody should, if you like history, you should read a biography of King Herod. But he was an evil son of a gun, too. But at any rate, that's when John the Baptist came in a particularly dark time in Israel's history. Now, there was a priest of Abijah's division. What is a division? Well, the priest the sons of Aaron who ministered in the temple, they were divided into 24 courses or 24 orders, or as the Holman Christian Study Bible says, a division, 24, and each one would, and they would serve in Jerusalem by turn. So there's 24. If every course served for two weeks, you're talking about 48 weeks, which is approximately a lunar year. So Zechariah came in to serve his time two weeks during the year. This was a probably a special time. There were so many priests that the priests could only serve in the temple about two weeks at a time. And so this was a sort of a special time for Zechariah when he came in. Now notice that not only was Zechariah a priest, he, a priest had to be in Aaron's family, as you know. 
But his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the daughters of Aaron. So this was a priestly family on both sides of the family. Now, Zacharias and Elizabeth were both said to be without blame, righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, there's two kinds of righteousness. You can be righteous by outwardly keeping the Jewish law. You can be civically righteous or civilly righteous. You just do all the stuff you're supposed to do, you know, kind of like a Kiwanis Club member or somebody like that who's out there shacking up with five of the housewives in the small town. He's outwardly righteous, but the righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ is a different kind of righteousness. And you always have to distinguish those two types of righteousness when you see the word righteous in the Scripture. Well, here I suspect, of course, they were keeping all the laws because it said so. They kept all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but I imagine they had a righteous heart that went along with it. I believe they believed in God. I don't think there's any question of that. We go to verses 8 and 10 in Luke chapter 1. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, the division of Abijai, the course of Abijai, so Zechariah is working. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now, even within one division of priests, Abijah's division, they still had to divide the jobs up. There were so many priestly jobs. And so they would draw lots. Now, a lot to do a particular job might fall on a particular priest only once in his life. So this was a very special event in the life of Zacharias. He had never been inside the holy place of the temple, and this was his shot at it. Now, there were three lots for that were drawn for the priestly duties of the morning sacrifice. Remember, there was a morning and evening sacrifice every day. The morning sacrifice had three jobs to do, and they cast lots for those jobs. One job, one lot, was cast for the one who was going to cleanse the bronze altar and start the fire on the bronze altar. That's out in the front in the courtyard sacrificial altar where the sacrifices of sin were offered. Somebody had to clean that and get the ashes out, wipe it down, start the fire. There was another priest who had to sprinkle blood on the bronze altar and on the candlesticks in the holy place and on the golden altar of incense in the holy place. Blood sprinkling priest, that was the second lot. And the third lot was the person who was going to put the incense on the golden altar of incense in the holy place. That golden altar, of course, was right at the doorway before the door that went into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, this time of incense, when he was supposed to burn the incense, is described, the requirements of it are described in Exodus 30, verses 6 through 8. Let me read it. You are to place the altar, that's the golden altar of incense, in front of the veil by the Ark of the Testimony. That means right at the doorway as you go into the Holy of Holies. In front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony. Not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place, in, in that door in front of the Ark. If you open the door, the, holy, the golden altar would be in front of the Ark, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. So it's incense in the morning, incense at night. There is to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. Now, of course, what the incense represented was perpetual prayers being sent up to God. That's easy symbolism there. Now, here's how the procedure worked. Hundreds of worshipers would gather before dawn in the temple court. The priest with the lot for offering incense walked through the courts toward the temple, banging a gun, bong, 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 as he came headed toward the doorway of the temple, the front door. The, other, the two other priests 
who were chosen by lot for that morning, they walked up from both sides and met the priest who was to burn the incense. So you got two priests coming from the side, one priest coming from the long angle, and they met. And, and then after they met, they all three entered the holy place together. Now one of the priests carried ashes away from the previous day on the golden altar, took the ashes out and tossed them out. Another one of those priests, the, the priest, the second priest, he placed coals that he had brought from the bronze altar, and he put those coals on the golden altar of incense. So those were the two priests besides Zacharias. Now the third priest was supposed to sprinkle the incense on the burning coals, and then he was to intercede in the holy place for the whole nation. Now the first two priests left the holy place during their duties, and when they left, all the people would bow down and kneel and spread their hands out before the Lord. And they waited in dead silence for several minutes. And during that dead silence, that's when the other priest who was placing the incense on the golden altar, that's when he did his work during that time of intense quiet. So Zacharias was in there during that time of quiet, laying the incense on the altar. And we go to verse 11 and read through 17. And there appeared unto him, that's Zacharias, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, that's Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now notice when that angel showed up there in the holy place, Zacharias had fear fall upon him. This is the usual reaction in the scriptures when angels appear to human beings. Angels aren't cute little fat babies with wings. Rather, they are glorious, awesome, and fearful creatures. Now, the angel, the angel who we later find out is Gabriel, said that Zacharias' prayer is heard. What prayer? No prayer is mentioned. Probably, be, probably the prayer was to have a son because his wife was barren. And he, Zacharias doesn't mention that's the prayer, but he does mention that that Elizabeth is going to bear a son, so that's probably what the prayer was. And it has been pointed out that a good Jew is going to be praying for the Messiah to come also. So he's praying for a son, he's praying for the Messiah, John the Baptist, that son is going to kill, is going to fulfill both of those prayers. Prayer for a child in general and prayer for that the Messiah would come and John the Baptist would help prepare the way for the Messiah. That prayer had probably been given up as they'd gotten into old age. They'd probably quit praying that. And I certainly don't think it was referring to praying right then as he prepared to offer the incense. He wouldn't be thinking about having a kid in his old age while he's getting ready to offer incense. The word John, the angel said, you're going to have to name that baby John. John means grace or mercy of Jehovah. It's, it comes from Yehovah Hanan. The Hebrew for John is Yehohanan, Yehovah Hanan, which means the grace or mercy of Jehovah. Now the name John for the angel to tell Zacharias to name John, that was not a suggestion to Zacharias. That was a command. Now, this baby was not to drink wine or strong drink as he grew up. Now, this is not a statement that drinking wine was a sin. It probably refers to the vow of a Nazarite, number six. The Nazarites would dedicate themselves to God for periods of time during which they would not drink wine or cut their hair. 
So the idea is, here is that John the Baptist is going to be consecrated to God for his entire life. Verse 14, that you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. All those who are looking for the Messiah are going to rejoice because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be filled with Holy Ghost, even filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question. Did John the Baptist do any good work or good works of any sort for the Holy Spirit to do this work in his life, to fill him from his mother's womb? Well, the answer to that is, of course not. Little baby has not even born yet, has not got time to do any good works. But this is just sheer grace that God did some good stuff. Now, this term, filling of the Holy Spirit, is a loose term. It shows up in the Scripture all the time. I'm going to read you these, and I'm with a purpose. The purpose is I want to show that I think it's a mistake to identify completely to fill someone with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that term, filling of the Holy Spirit, did occur at Pentecost, which was the first baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said, not many days you go to Jerusalem and you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So you can equate fill and baptism of the Holy Spirit. not complaining about that as a general proposition. However, what people do is they go further than that and they say, well, look at all these other places where it says fill with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, a baptism of the Holy Spirit is not so special. It's not so Pentecostal. It's not so stay here in Jerusalem and wait for it and pray for it. Not something special. Well, I think that's bad. I think that's a mistake. Let me give you the scriptures where it shows that Christians were, or people, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice something. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not as a result of prayer, except in the classic five Pentecostal passages in Acts. It's a result of prayer, usually. Maybe not in Acts 10. That one happened automatically. But usually baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is as a result of praying for it. Whereas filling with the Holy Spirit is just something that happens in the course of events. So, with that in mind, let's read, uh, let's look at the example in Acts 13, verse 52. Here we see disciples who were persecuted out of Pisidian Antioch as they drove them out. Those disciples went on their way to Iconium, filled with the Holy Spirit on the first missionary journey of Paul. We know in Ephesians 5:18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, we'll see in just a minute, or next audio actually, in verse 41 of chapter 1 of Luke, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit when John the Baptist leapt at her womb. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Now the word filled is also used of the Christians who were filled at Pentecost, and that is the exception to the general rule. There you have people actually praying to, uh, to be filled, and that's not, that usually doesn't happen. We have Peter filled with the Holy Spirit when he and John were arrested by the Jewish leaders in Acts 4, verses 8. It says, Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit and went out and preached. Christians preaching in Jerusalem after Peter and John's release. They were said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's at the end of Acts 4. It's Acts 4:31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Stephen, as he was martyred, and Acts 7.55 is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was on the island of, island of Cyprus on his first missionary journey, and he confronted Elymas the sorcerer. And it says when he did that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So you see, these fillings came when people need them, but it's not like, oh, gee, i got to face a sorcerer here. So excuse me a minute, Elymas. i got to pray. Oh, God, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, Elymas, I can look you in the eye. And it's not, that's not the way it works. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something the Holy Spirit does as you go out and live your life of ministry and sanctification and so forth. But getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I want you to wait. I want you to go to Jerusalem for a specific act, and I want you to pray for it, and it happens after your conversion. 
Sorry to say that, but that's that's the way it is. All you third-wave Pentecostals who think you got it when you got saved, I don't think you're right about that. And all you evangelical, non-charismatic evangelicals, I think you're wrong too. And I think I got plenty of scriptures to back it up. But we're not going to do that here. In verse 16, many of the children of Israel shall he, John the Baptist, turn to the Lord their God. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He preached the kingdom of God to the people. He preached repentance to the people. And by doing that, he prepared people's hearts for God's son, Jesus. Because once people started getting thirsty for righteousness and thirsty for the Messiah, then they were ready when Jesus showed up. He was the forerunner. He prepared the way. Verse 17 in Luke chapter 1. Luke says that John the Baptist shall go before the Messiah, or before, excuse me, before God, before God in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, John the Baptist explicitly fulfilled a prophecy that said that Elijah was going to come. That's Mal- Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, that great and awesome day of the Lord is referring to 8070 when God came in judgment on the Jews. John the Baptist would come before that, about 40 years before that, and he is called Elijah the prophet. So John the Baptist is, is, is fulfillment of Elijah. Elijah is the type. John the Baptist is the fulfillment. Now, this is meaningful, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, because these are the very last verses in the Old Testament. And the idea is, look, Revelation has stopped coming to Israel for over 400 years. And then John the Baptist shows up. Revelation's coming again. Now, you notice he says he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. How? Well, not directly, because, but indirectly. When men are reconciled with God, there's also reconciliation between men and men. Reconciliation with men and God leads to reconciliation between men and men, especially in families. So that's what I think he's talking about. Now, this idea of John the Baptist fulfilling Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Malachi saying that Elijah was coming, Jesus explicitly fulfills that for us, or shows explicitly explains that fulfillment for us. In Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus says this, If you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. In Matthew 17, 12, Jesus says this, but I tell you, Elijah, John the Baptist, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. Now, the reason that Zacharias said he was old and his wife was old or stricken in years is because he's responding to Gabriel's promise that they're going to have a kid. They're going to have a son. He's supposed to name him John. He's going to turn people to the Lord. He's going to restore the hearts of the children to the fathers and all this wonderful stuff. Zacharias didn't get to all the wonderful stuff. He goes right to the root of the problem. How am I going to have a son? I'm too old. What are you talking about all this wonderful stuff in my son? I, don't have a, I can't have a son. I'm too old. He looked at the circumstances first and what God could do last, which is typically what all human beings do when confronted with the promises of God. Now, when Zacharias expressed his doubt, the angel immediately said, I am Gabriel. And, of course, the idea here is that Gabriel is identifying himself to remind Zacharias that having a son in his old age is no big deal to Gabriel, and it's certainly no big deal to God. So 
Gabriel strikes Zacharias dumb. And he's supposed to be dumb. And well, he was struck dumb explicitly because Zacharias didn't believe in Gabriel's words. And he was going to be dumb until the day that these things shall be performed until John the Baptist is born. So it was ironic. The punishment that Zechariah had was he could, not, he could not tell his incredibly good news to anyone. Couldn't talk about it. So moving now to Luke chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, we read this. And the people waited for Zacharias. Those are the people outside in the courtyard who laying down on the ground with their hands outstretched and their noses on the flagstones in dead silence, waiting for Zacharias to come out, and he didn't come out. People waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple, and when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Actually, he hadn't seen a vision, he saw an angel. For he beckoned unto them, and he remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. Now, the people were waiting for Zacharias, in the face of a custom in which the priest who had exited, who had entered the temple to offer the incense, in which the priest normally left the temple immediately after he offered the incense. But Zacharias didn't leave the temple immediately after offering the incense. He was busy dealing with Gabriel. Now when the people, when the priest came out, he reassured the people by, by, by coming out quickly, he reassured the people that he had not been struck dead by God by violating the temple ritual somehow violating one of the holy commandments concerning the service. The high priest, if you recall, had a rope tied to his leg, and then he had bells around his high priestly robe. He'd go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The people would listen for the tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. If they didn't hear the tinkle, they assumed the high priest had been struck dead. They had a rope already tied to his leg when he went in, and they pulled him out. That was for the high priest, and that's not for this uh, morning incense offering that Zacharias is doing, but still it's the same idea. They're nervous that he might get killed for violating the law, and so they're waiting to see him, and they're getting nervous. Where is he? When he finally did come out, he beckoned with his hands. What did he do with his hands? Well, he could have been raising his hands and blessing the people. He was supposed to pronounce a blessing, but he couldn't do it, so he just blessed them with his hands. He was supposed to print the uh, to recite the benediction, number 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I remember when I was a Presbyterian kid, what even more, any more saved than an Easter egg. How many times when we finished our Sunday school class was this misbenediction repeated to us over and over again? Well, anyway, he's out there. He's beckoning to the crowd. He's either blessing them with his hands or he's just hand motioning saying, hey, I saw an angel, I saw an angel, and trying to express himself using his hands. That'd be kind of difficult to do. All right, let's finish up with the last two verses in Luke chapter 1. And after these day, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself for five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Why did Elizabeth hide herself for five months? Here's some options. First, she could be hiding that she was pregnant. Well, I don't think so. First of all, why would she want to do that? What's the big deal about being pregnant? In fact, that's probably considered an honorable thing, a wonderful thing to be pregnant. And besides, first five months of a woman's pregnancy is not very noticeable anyway. So I don't think it's that. I think it's rather to seclude herself with God. That's why she hid herself for five months, to be alone with God, to meditate on the destiny of the child with her. She knew the child had some kind of destiny because of all the prophecies and all the uh, events of Zechariah 
that Zechariah experienced in the holy place with the angel Gabriel. She might have wanted to hide out so she could be sure that the words of Gabriel would be true till she started showing that she was pregnant. I don't know what her motives were. I think it's just because she wanted to get along with God. Now, in verse 25, Elizabeth says that the Lord has taken away her reproach among men. Why would Elizabeth be reproached? Well, because it was considered shameful for Jewish women not to have children. That was a big deal for them back then, and there was a reason for it. They didn't have a good much population. They needed population. So that's why. We are now finished with the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. In our next audio, we will look at how Luke foretells or how Luke describes the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. Hope you enjoyed this audio.